Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to be back with you, and it's good to be back into the Gospel of John. Last week, we started back in in chapter 9, and we went through verses 1 through 12, kind of the introduction of this story of Jesus healing a man who was born blind. And today, we are going to continue on with that story and look at, at how that, then, that miracle was received uh, by those around. And then next week, we're going to look at kind of the conclusion as Jesus interacts with this man again. And so to, to remind us of where we've come from, uh, I want to read to you verses 1 through 12. And then our text this morning is verses 13 through 34, which is a big text. And so I'm, I'm going to try to move us through this so I can keep to our time limit. Um, but please uh, follow along with me and let me, let me begin verses 1 through 12. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means scent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, Isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that it was. Others said, No, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How then were your eyes open, they asked. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and then I could see. Where is this man, they asked. I don't know, he said. Now this is the part that we looked at last week. Jesus' miraculous healing of this man. And you would think generally, well, there's no reason for any conflict. But boy, we find some today. And so let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then we're going to read our text as we go through it, uh, rather than the whole thing at once. Let's pray. Father God, I, I thank you and I praise you for the goodness of who you are. I pray, Lord, that everyone who is at home watching, Father, that you would use uh, this message to, to enlighten our hearts, to open our eyes, and to bind us together in love and unity. God, we pray that you would provide for the needs of the church. We pray that you would help to make all uh, the believers who are involved in this church um, great lights in this community. That you would help us to love you well and to love others well as we seek to share the gospel, encourage people's faith, and draw other people to Christ. I ask, Lord, that you would use us in that and that we would humbly uh, follow after Christ. God, I pray for those who are suffering, who are sick, who are discouraged, uh, who are alone, uh, I pray, Lord, that you would uh, encourage them. And Father, for those who are struggling financially, Father, I thank you the, for the benevolent account that the church can use to help people, and I pray that you would give people the humility to, to call and ask. Um, and I thank you, God, for just being a, a faithful, good, loving Father. I ask, Lord, that you would bring us all back together again soon. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, 
As I said, we have a lot to cover, and so we're just going to dive into it today. And we're going to start with the introduction, which we get in verses 13 and 14. So let's begin with verse 13. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been born blind, or who had been blind. Now we're not told why this man's neighbors decided to turn to the Pharisees with this issue of a man being born blind who was then given sight by Jesus. All it seems to imply is that the Pharisees' opinion in spiritual matters was seriously respected at this time. And they didn't trust themselves to decide if this man was actually healed and if Jesus had done it, so they turned the case over to the religious leaders of the day. But there may be more to it than that, because the next verse, we get something new into this account. John tells us one important piece of information that up until now hasn't been mentioned. Look at verse 14. Now, the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Okay, here's the rub. Here's the conflict. Here's the issue. Jesus, again in this gospel, is performing miracles on the Sabbath. And you see, the Pharisees and some of the rabbis before them had added to, the gods, to God's law, especially as it related to the Sabbath. God commanded people not to, to work on the Lord's day and to keep it holy. But Jesus stressed that the Sabbath was meant to be a blessing to people, to, to enjoy, to, to worship, and to rest in God on that day. But instead of that, the Pharisees had turned it into the most stressful day of the week. Their laws were in direct conflict with God's commands, and their laws were so nitpicky that it became a burden toward all Israelites. And this is not the first time that Jesus has, has broken the Pharisees' laws on the Sabbath. And it won't be the last. But what we must remember is that Jesus never broke God's laws for the Sabbath. But the Pharisees didn't care about that. For them, their rules were God's laws. They treated God's word and their tradition as equals. And at times, their views of their traditions outweighed their, the influence of God's word. And this is why it is so vitally important that we not make the error that the Catholic Church has made and many Protestants have made and continue to make. Our traditions are man-made and thus must not be elevated to being equal to the words of God. God's word is the only necessity for the church. Specifically, Jesus had violated the Pharisees' Sabbath laws in three ways. First, he spat on the ground and made a ball of clay. Now, the Pharisees define making clay as manual labor, no matter how much, how big of an amount, whether it was a whole brick or whether it was a small ball enough to cover someone's eye. Didn't matter. Making clay was manual labor, and thus, according to them, you were dishonoring God and disobeying the Sabbath by doing it. Jesus broke that rule of theirs. Second, while the rabbis permitted the healing of someone on the Sabbath, in the case of someone who was dying, 
they forbid it in the cases where a patient could wait. So, in other words, a doctor was not allowed to treat a, a toothache on the Sabbath. A person, even with a sprained ankle, was not allowed, according to the Pharisees' rules, was not allowed to apply even a cold cloth. So, according to them, Jesus should have either waited until another day to perform the miracle, to give this man sight, or not do it at all that it would have been better for him never to have done it than to have done it on the Sabbath. This is where the Pharisees stood on the Sabbath. The third issue was that there was a specific command that they gave against applying saliva to eyes or to the area of the eyes. Generally, it was the face, but specifically in the eye area, which Jesus had done in healing this man. So he had broken three of their Sabbath commands, and the text goes out of its way to emphasize how he did this miracle and, and the way in which he did it. And even the testimony of this man reiterating how Jesus did it points out the fact that Jesus has broken the Sabbath laws according to the Pharisees, which is very likely why his neighbors decided to bring him to the Pharisees, because he's not doing what they've told him he needs to do. Now, I think that the Pharisees' laws there give us a great deal of Jesus and detail into why Jesus healed the way that he did. Jesus was unaware of their laws. And it's very possible that he performed this miracle the way that he did directly to break their laws, to publicly challenge their laws, to, to push people, the, the, the to help people to understand that they couldn't have both Jesus and the Pharisees. The theology of Jesus and the theology of the Pharisees could not be intermixed. The, 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 the gospel of Jesus and the gospel of the Pharisees were incompatible with each other. The, Jesus is pushing people here to pick a side. Jesus knew that God had commanded the Israelites to stop their work on the Sabbath, but not to stop God's work on the Sabbath, not to take a break from love. Jesus was putting a clear line between himself as God's servant and the Pharisees as servants of themselves. So that's the introduction. And now we get to the trial. <clears throat> Excuse me. And in this trial, there are, there are really three interrogations that are given here that the Pharisees look at and review to try to come to a determination. So let's look at each of them one by one. The first interrogation is verses 15 through 17. Look at the first verse 15. Therefore the Pharisees asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed and now I see. Now although the Pharisees have already made up their minds in general about Jesus, they still have a problem. How could someone who they proclaim to be of Satan, someone who they proclaim to be not doing the works of God but doing the works of Satan, perform such a miraculous miracle. So they needed to find a way to explain away this remarkable event. So first, they brought in the man who claimed to have had his eyes opened, but his testimony didn't denounce Jesus or offer hope that he was going to change his story in light of their, their peer pressure. Look at verse 16. 
Some of the Pharisees, Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, How can a sinner perform such signs since they were, or so they were divided? Now here we have the conflict stated explicitly among the Pharisees. Some rejected Jesus because he didn't keep their Sabbath laws, even though he didn't break any of God's Sabbath laws. Now, but again, they don't see any differentiation between the two. What their rabbis, what they have decided to be true, they take as God's word. Others needed a better reason to reject the miracle before they could reject Jesus. Now, it's important that we catch the fact that this was not a division between the Pharisees who honestly sought to please God and those who didn't. Notice that no one ever talks about consulting the word of God or talking to Jesus in, in an attempt to find out the truth. They are not looking for the truth. They are looking for a way to discredit Jesus and, and to continue their philosophy of works-based righteousness. And it's well known in both the Old Testament and the New that God sometimes allows false prophets to perform so-called miracles. And as John Calvin put it, we know that Satan, like an ape, imitates the works of God to deceive the unweary. Or the un the unwary. Just because a miracle has been done is no reason to assume that God did it. This is part of their theological uh, break. Verse 17. Then they turned again to the blind man. What happened, uh, or what have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man replied, he is a prophet. Again, they came after the man who had been healed. Not seeking the truth, but instead asking him a question in the form of an accusation. Their intention is to intimidate him into changing his story, into condemning Jesus and trusting in them. It's important for us to remember that no matter how hard the wicked try to blow out God's light, it cannot be done. The more they try, the more they try to blow it out, it, it, the more that light shines through. It's like trying to blow out a trick candle. Have you ever had somebody put those trick candles on your cake and you blow it out and the more you blow, it just comes up brighter and brighter? This is, what, this is what the result of the wicked is in trying to blow out God's revelation, God's work. It can't be done. God can't be pushed around by the wicked and his truth is always truth that shines even in the darkest of places. Notice that in response, the man, had been, uh, the man who had been healed called Jesus a prophet. This means that he is affirming that Jesus, what Jesus already told him in verse 4, that he was sent from God to do the works of God. So he saw Jesus as, as a, a messenger of God, a prophet. So that's the first interrogation. Now let's move into the second interrogation. Verses, uh, that's verses 18 through 23. Look at first at verses 18 and 19. They still did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son, they asked. Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it now that he can see? And here again, they are simply trying to discredit the man and his testimony. 
They're hoping to get a testimony so that they can, they can push away this miracle by calling this man a liar. And when they called in his parents, they're trying to intimidate them and, and they're showing their hands. The way that they want that they ask the questions shows the way in which they want an answer. The parents here are just pawns. And they're being threatened by those in power for no biblical reason. And if they were to answer the questions wrongly, in a way that the Pharisees didn't like, they would also become victims. But notice how carefully they answer. Look at verses 20 through 23. We know he is our son, the parents answered, and we know he was born blind. But how he can see now, or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who had already decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. And that was why his parents said, he is of age, ask him. First, notice that his parents had no issue answering the first two questions. Yes, this man is our son, and yes, he was born blind. These two questions they weren't intimidated into answering, but they knew that it was the last question that lay a trap for them. They knew clearly that the Pharisees were not interested in truth. They had already made that determination, not only internally, but publicly. They had publicly stated and warned people that if they claimed Jesus as the Messiah, as the messenger of God, as, as the means of salvation, as the light of the world, they would be removed from temple worship. Now, this would have been, at the time, an enormous punishment. We don't get how strong this is. When we talk about excommunication here, we, it's kind of watered down with the number of churches everywhere because people uh, sometimes will deal with church discipline and they'll just say, well, fine, then I'm just going to go to this church down the street because we want church our way. We don't want it God's way. We're arrogant in many ways, just like the Pharisees were. But to be removed from temple of worship would be equivalent to being banished from family, from tribe, from nation, and from God himself. So they answered the questions, the parents answered the questions very carefully. And in the end, they protected themselves and left their son for himself to decide if he wanted to be punished and play or play the game of the Pharisees. If he was going to choose the side of Jesus or choose the side of the Pharisees. So this is much of the, the second interrogation. Now we come to the third interrogation where they bring back this man that they first interrogated because they still don't have a way out. Look at verse 24. A second time they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know this man is a sinner. Why are they recalling this guy? I mean, they already have his testimony. Why are they bringing him back in and asking him the same questions again? Well, the reason is because they are just looking for a way out. They're looking for any, any bit of contradiction. They're just looking to discredit Jesus and, or disprove this miracle. Notice that they begin by stressing that he lied before. Give glory to God by telling the truth is just another way of saying, recant your testimony and denounce Jesus. We know that you lied before, so tell the truth this time. 
They're saying to this man, give glory to God by lying. This is how blinded they are by their pride. And again, the reason that they are doing this is because they view their traditions, their truth over God's. This man needs to trust them, not the word about not the word of God about Jesus, not the miracles of Jesus, not the testimony of Jesus, but just them. For they know that Jesus is a sinner. They've determined it to be true because he has broken their rules. Look at verse 25. He replied, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. This blind man didn't take their bait. He didn't give into the temptation to lie. Instead, he trusted in what he knew to be true, which was simply what he had experienced. I was blind, but now I see. No doctor, no rabbi, no one has ever been able to bring my sight. But this man did. From this guy's perspective, there is no way of explaining this miracle. Jesus did it, and according to Jesus, it was done as God desired it to be done. Again, verse 4. Look at verses 26 through 27. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? But the Pharisees wanted him to explain it again. They, they wanted it to, again to find a contradiction, to find a way of, 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 of dishonoring Jesus, discrediting Jesus, or, or dis, uh, discrediting this miracle. But he wasn't going to play their game. Instead, since he already answered this question, they already had it on file, he started to dive into their motives. What did they want to come out of this trial? For from his perspective, the only option was to be a disciple of the servant of God. If there is a man who is of God, who is glorifying God, who is doing powerful works and giving glory to God, then you follow him. You listen to him. This man has testified truthfully and powerfully, but understand he has not shared the gospel. For at this time, he still doesn't know the gospel. But still, from his perspective... Even though he doesn't view Jesus as the prophet, he views him as a prophet, Prophet, he still thinks that if there's someone whose God has sent who is doing works like this, then they should be listened to. Which is a wise place to be. And then we come to the judgment at the end, verses 28 through 34. Then they hurled insults at him and said, You are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. Now, when they say that they don't know where he comes from, they're they're not talking about his country or his birthplace or his family lineage. They're talking about his prophetic office. They're, They're saying that they have no knowledge of his credentials. But instead of investigating them, the credentials, by looking into the words and works of Jesus, they've already condemned the words and works of Jesus. They're just trying to prop themselves up by using Moses as their own tool, manipulating him so that they can discredit this man. But if you've been paying attention in John's gospel, this very reference to Moses by John, our author, is meant to push the reader to understand that these Pharisees have no idea what they're saying. 
No clue. Because according to this gospel, Moses himself is one of the witnesses who testified to the authority, the office of Jesus. Just one example in John 5, verses 45 through 47, Jesus says, do, and speaking to the Pharisees here, he says, do not think I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom your hopes are set. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? You see, John has, has pushed this into the, the minds of the readers to say, hey, don't be deceived. Don't be tricked by these guys. They're saying that because of Moses, they can reject Jesus. But it's already been laid out multiple times in this gospel already. Moses is one of the ones who props Jesus up. Jesus up. Then look at verses 30 through 33. The man answered, now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of the opening of the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. This man makes a very strong statement here, but it needs a little bit of explaining. When he says that God doesn't listen to sinners, the word for sinner here means an ungodly, immoral person. In other words, it's not someone who has sinned. It means someone who is committed, who is completely committed to a life of sin. If God never listens to sinners generally, then he would never listen to any of us. Because we are saved by grace alone. No one has ever been found righteous according to the law, except Jesus. This is a specific kind of sinner that he's referencing here. Someone who doesn't seek God. Someone who's committed to their sin. Then the man stresses in verses 32 and 33 that Jesus has done something that no one has ever even heard of being done. Again, just because a miracle happens doesn't mean that it should be accepted as from God. But when one happens, it should be investigated. We should test the spirits, we're told in Thessalonians. His theology is simple here, but it can't be pushed too far. Remember the source. This man had, has had limited instruction in the word of God because of his blindness. Because so much of instruction was dependent upon memorization and personal reading. We must remember that just because something miraculous happens doesn't mean that it's of God. But this man, in this instance, is confident that, that this miracle was of God. It was through Jesus, and Jesus is glorifying God, and Jesus has not broken any of God's laws or God's commands, and so he will not deny Jesus or the miracle that he did. Then look at verse 34. To this they replied, you, are, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. And they're making the same assumption that the disciples made earlier that we talked about last week. Their final determination is that this man was committed to sin from birth. He has always loved his sin and never wanted to change. They condemn him as less than them. So they throw him out. This means that they excommunicated him. They removed him from temple worship from being able to obey God's laws, from being able to meet with rabbis to learn God's word, they kicked him out, which for them has the benefit of discrediting Jesus. Because if Jesus healed a man, or if some man is saying great things about Jesus, but he's been excommunicated, 
Well, that limits that person's ability to share this message with other Israelites, but it also removes them from having to deal with this thorn in their side, this, this pebble in their shoe who's saying, you need to relook Jesus. You need to look at him again. Now they don't have to listen to him because he's gone. John Calvin warns that there is no worse plague than when pride stops our ears and we do not trouble to hear those who warn us for our own good. God often selects worthless and base men to teach and warn us that he may cast down our pride. But they will have no part of this. Humility is not something that they, that they value. So they accept this plague, they condemn Jesus, they condemn this man, and for them, the case is over. So what do we do with this? Next week, we come to the conclusion. We get to pull a lot of things together. But quickly, I, I just want to give you two things to chew on. Two, three-ish. First, never, ever let your pride Raise your traditions above the teaching of God's word. Hold traditions loosely. Hold the scriptures tightly. The Pharisees, they held their traditions tightly, which caused them to, to loosen their grip on the scriptures. And we must always be asking ourselves if we might be distorting or ignoring the word of God because of our own opinions, or our own laws, or our own traditions. The places where we need to look into and investigate in our lives are, are the areas where the sins that we want to justify because of our own wisdom. The duties that we want to neglect because of our own selfishness. And the love that we want to withhold because of our own pride. We each need to be investigating into ourselves, asking God to search our hearts and allowing the church to come alongside of us and push us and challenge us to say, hey, you're in the wrong about this. Or you need to study the scripture more about this. Remember Jesus' two great commandments, love God and love your neighbor. All the other rules, whatever they may be that we have, must flow in and out of those two. We must operate by God's standards, not ours. No matter how great you think your standards are, God's are the ones that are absolutely true. People always have a tendency to erect their own rules as a way of keeping themselves righteous by their own, their own works by how good they are at following their own rules, while at the same time ignoring God's law. Let us never be so arrogant. Let us always remain humble before the word of God. Lastly, <clears throat> I want you to consider the why question for the Pharisees and for Jesus. Why did the Pharisees act the way they did, and why did Jesus do what he did? First, the Pharisees. They rejected Jesus because the gospel that he was proclaiming was offensive to them. So they went to, to outrageous lengths in order to ignore it. And the reason was because they didn't want the kind of savior that Jesus was. 
They wanted to be affirmed by God on their own merits. Not forgiven through the means of grace. Not through the death of a Savior. They were proud in themselves, proud in their own efforts, and wanted God's approval based upon their own good works, by their own standards. But the true gospel demands that we admit our fault, that we admit our inability to save ourselves and trust fully upon Jesus, his grace, his life and death for our only hope. If we do not do a better job of condemning pride in ourselves and in the church, then both we and the church will look and sound a lot more like the Pharisees than Jesus. But we also need to remember the why for Jesus. I mean, why didn't Jesus just wait another day? Or why didn't he just pass this guy by? He passed other people by. Jesus didn't heal everyone. I mean, why stir up this conflict that he knew was going to be brought up because he did it on the Sabbath? And we need to remember that just because conflict shows up in life does not mean that it's a bad thing. For God, God always does things for a reason. The Sabbath was a line that had had confused many And by breaking it, Jesus forced the Pharisees to confirm their sinfulness for others to see. And for this man to more more fully dive into who Jesus was and what Jesus had done. Jesus forced the trial so that the the light of his miracle would shine more brightly to those who had eyes to see it. Remember how this man changes throughout this event. We see this steady growth in him. And part of it is because of this this conflict that forced him to process and think through who Jesus was and what Jesus had really done. At first, he, he referred to Jesus as the man they call Jesus in verse 11. Then after thinking about it, he refers to Jesus as a prophet in verse 17. And as we'll see next week, this leads him to having faith in Jesus as the Son of Man and the Lord in verses 35 and 38, which then lead to him worshiping Jesus. Friends, not all conflicts are bad. God is more more than able to use the trials of the wicked to make his light shine brighter so that people can see the truth. And so that our faith may be refined and grow. Let's go to Lord in prayer. Father God, I thank you for the goodness of who you are and what you've given us in your word. I pray, Lord, that you give us the wisdom to contemplate it deeply. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.